Before I get to the, the sermon this morning, uh, I want to joyfully announce that we are taking in new members today. Uh, one of their names is Jane Mon, and one of their names is Betty Oldham. These two women have served this church forever. They served the church until uh, they were no longer able to drive to it. And so reluctantly, they moved to a retirement home and began to attend Messiah uh, Lifeways. And, but, uh, we, and that was a very sad day for this church when they felt like, that, like they were unable to drive in here. As time has progressed, um, Betty and Jane, Jane lives in a, uh, Betty lives in a facility near Newville, uh, Jane lives in Dillsburg, and uh, for the first time in many, many years, they are not together, at least physically. When we needed help, they have always been here. It's easy to forget that although Christ is the solid rock, we also stand on the shoulders of others who have passed before us. We stand on the shoulders of people. This church stands on the shoulders of people like Betty and Jane. And today, it is such a joy to say back to them, welcome home. They transferred their membership because they want this to be the last church they are ever a member of. And we welcome them home and celebrate that women who poured themselves into this church for 40 plus years are back among us this morning. Welcome back. Yeah, stand up. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. I tease the women that usually sit over there, but I started years ago. You know, usually I go to the women and say, okay, wild women, I got my eye. You must behave this Sunday. They were the original wild women and uh, that I had to watch carefully. Uh, Today I'm reading as we continue through the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. A very strange sermon on Father's Day. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. 
If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. No one can ever say Jesus was not honest. No one can ever say that right from the start Jesus pulled any punches. He said to to his followers and made it clear that if they really followed him, they would arouse hatred and scorn from all kinds of people and all kinds of institutions. You know, Hank was a marketing major. And I'm sure Hank would be the first to tell you that when Jesus went around telling people, if you follow me, you'll be like lambs led to the slaughter. If you follow me, you'll be persecuted. I would, I'm sure Hank would tell you that is not good marketing strategy if you're trying to grow a movement. But Jesus seemed to think it was. You know, and, and to be honest, Jesus' words in this passage resonate more to many people across the world than they do here. In many places on this planet, a believer is in danger of some sort for simply being a Christian or for assembling to worship as Christians or for evangelizing. In many Muslim nations, this is true, although not all. The big believers in Orissa, India, have lived under constant threat of persecution breaking out for decades. People have been murdered there. Our brothers and sisters in in the Brethren in Christ Church, one evangelist was beheaded there. A young girl's hostel was burned to the ground there. And although I haven't heard about anything lately, those folks never know when the next wave of persecution is going to come. David Platt said he visited a country in Asia where it was against the law to be a Christian. And he said he went to a house church. He said, imagine all the blinds closed on the windows of a dimly lit room. Twenty leaders from different countries in the area sat in a circle on the floor with their Bibles open. Some of them had sweat on their foreheads after walking for miles to get there. Others were dirty from the dust in the villages from which they had sat up on bikes early that morning. They gathered in secret. They intentionally had to come to that home at different times throughout the morning so as to not draw suspicion. They lived in a country in Asia where it was illegal for them to gather like this. If they were caught, they could lose their land, their jobs, their families, their lives. And he started listening. It was a group of pastors who were sharing what their burdens were. And they shared about kidnappings. They shared about torture. They shared about brothers and sisters having their tongues cut out of their mouths for their faith. And as they shared about the dangers this church members were facing, tears welled up in their eyes. I am hurting, one pastor said. I need God's grace to lead my church through these attacks. A woman on the other side of the room spoke up. Some of the members of my church were recently confronted by government officials, she continued. They threatened their family, saying if they did not stop gathering to study the Bible, they were going to lose everything they had. She asked for prayer, saying, I need to know how to lead my church to follow Christ, even when it costs them everything. He says, as I looked around the room, I saw everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by this brother and sister were not isolated. They all looked at one another, and spontaneously, the whole room of pastors said, we need to pray. Immediately, they went to their knees with their faces on the ground, and they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theology and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh, God, thank you for loving us. Oh, God, we need you. 
Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust in you. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After about an hour, the room drew to silence, and they rose from the floor. Humbled by what I had just been a part of, Platt says, I saw puddles of tears around the room. Many of our brothers and sisters across the globe need our puddles of tears in prayer too. They need to know that they are not alone and that we are with them. If we act like Jesus, we just may get persecuted. Jesus said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Isn't it fascinating that the most perfect human being that ever lived was so hated and and ended up murdered? But there was something about him that was so different that even the religious establishment felt uncomfortable about him. People resented, you know, Jesus because he did not conform to their religion, did not conform to their image of God. Jesus was unlike anything they had ever seen. And as long as you and I allow Christ to live through us, some people will be threatened. Tom Hoppler, in his book, A World of Difference, talked about the difficulties his friend Bill encountered simply because he refused to violate his integrity. Bill was a Christian who joined a large business firm as a junior executive. Bill soon learned how the game was played. The other junior executives in Bill's section of the company had a little kickback scheme going. It didn't involve a whole lot of money, but it was still cheating the company. Bill learned that this little scheme had been going on in the company for years. But because he was a Christian, Bill refused to participate. For the next few years, Bill was ignored when it came to job promotions, while his friends who who came in with him, who cheated, shot up the corporate ladder. Bill later learned that this kickback scheme was a way for the senior executives to screen out who might be a potential danger to them. They wanted to get everybody on the take so nobody would rat everybody out. The last thing these senior executives wanted was someone who could blow the whistle on them. And so to make sure their jobs were secure, they made everybody participate. But Bill would not participate. You know, the last thing a dishonest man wants around is an honest man. The last thing a cheater wants around is someone who refuses to compromise their integrity. If you follow Jesus, according to Jesus, you will automatically be a nonconformist to this world. And the world will resent you for it. You will get in trouble for it. Because it is inevitable because worldly people always will try to silence the discomforting voice of conscience, whether it is spoken out loud or just modeled in front of them. Make no mistake, the good Christian will not always be the nice, popular person who never offends anybody. Jesus offended people. Did you notice? As a matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe unto you if everybody speaks well of you. It means you're a chameleon. It means you don't have the guts to tell the truth. Now, there's always a danger of Christians being negative or abrasive or condemning. But to be honest, the greatest danger to most of us 
is simply blending in to the world around us. The church, if it's really being the church, should be expanding the boundaries of righteousness and justice. It should be challenging anything that Jesus calls sin. Christians are people who have a holy discontent and are willing at some level, in some way, to take on the status quo. That's what got Jesus into so much trouble. You know what really got Jesus killed? It wasn't even blasphemy, although that really upset the Pharisees. What got him killed was the day he cleansed the temple. What, you know, they had a nice little racket going on there. And what would happen is that people, often poor people, would make a once-in-a-life pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would bring their own sheep with them because they knew they, they didn't want to take a chance on buying a sheep in Jerusalem. It might be too expensive. And they had people there at the temple who would inspect their sheep and say, nope, it's not good enough. Even though they might be lying, they say, it's not good enough. You need to buy a really pure sheep from us right here. And they would charge them exorbitant prices. They were ripping off people in the name of God. Jesus said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you're a bunch of crooks. You are a den of thieves. And that, when he did that, when he turned over tables, when he cleansed the temple, when he messed with real money, that sealed his fate. Make no mistake about it. If Jesus would, have, would not have been persecuted, if he would have just gone out on a hill covered with daisies and talked about the end of time, nobody would have bothered him. If Jesus would have just prayed daily, read his Torah, went to synagogue, and kept his mouth shut, Jesus would have never been crucified. Jesus shook things up. Like Jerry Lee Lewis said, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, sometimes things come out of my mouth and go, what, what did I just say? <laughs> And the same was true for us. We live in a country, thank God, where it's not a, a crime to be a Christian or to worship together like this morning or to evangelize. And if we just study our Bible, read our daily bread, do our daily devotionals, pray and go to church, nobody will bother us. Nobody will. But if we start shaking things up, watch out. I've discovered that if you challenge racism, you just may lose some friends. I have, and I'm sad about that. I've discovered if you challenge corruption, you just may lose your job. I've discovered if you take on any injustice, there will always be pushback. I'm the national chair of Heeding God's Call. I don't know how I ended up here. It happened so fast. I must have been asleep when it happened. But it's an interfaith group dedicated to putting a dent in gun violence in this country. We're different from other groups in this regard because we are only one or two of a, a faith-based people who say we need to take a look at this issue. And we join with other faiths who try to stem the carnage in the name of the sanctity of human life and the God who created human life. We are partners with Jews and Muslims and others. We were found, this group was founded eight years ago by Brian Miller. Brian Miller's the executive director of Heeding God's Call. He lives in Philadelphia. And the reason he started Heeding God's Call was because his brother was an FBI agent. And he was in the FBI facility one day 
doing paperwork or something, and somebody just broke into the, uh, into the FBI facility and just started shooting the place up and killed his brother in cold blood at his desk. And Brian said, this cannot stand. My brother's death must not be in vain. And that's how we got started. We belong to no political party. We are not anti-gun, by the way. Because the problem, as we discern it, is not hunters or hunting rifles. It is not shotguns. It is not target shooting or gun collecting. We are not opposed to legally owned handguns. Just don't bring them to church. <laughs> but what we are against are illegal handguns that are flooding our streets and certain weapons created for war, loose, and civilian populations. Now, when I say that, I want you to understand, I don't expect everybody in this church to agree with everything Heeding God's Call does. But I think you'd be stunned if we sat down and did every, the agenda. I bet you every person in this room would agree with at least 80% of it. Not everything. And I'm not condemning anyone who doesn't agree with all of it. I'm just telling you what Heeding God's Call thinks. As, you know, so, but what we do is we do prayer vigils with grieving families at murder sites. We have mobile memorials to the lost. Uh, in other words, what we do is we make crosses and put T-shirts on the cross, and we put the name of the person murdered, and then we put their date of birth and the date their life was extinguished. And it's very moving, especially when the families are there. By the way, we're going to have a Gun Violence Awareness Day next Sunday at 3 o'clock. You can come at St. Paul's Episcopal, but you don't have to come. In addition, we know there are some laws that can make a difference. For instance, for instance did you know that in most cases, 90% of the guns used in crimes in this country come from 5% of the gun shops? Did you know that? And here's the kicker. That's not the worst part. It's against the law for the government federal, state, or local, and for the police to reveal the source of those illegal guns flooding a local community. It's against the law. This law was passed as a rider on an obscure bill passed approximately 20 years ago. Think about that. Information that should be public so the public can do something about it cannot be released because it's against the law for the public to know who's breaking the law. That is anti-democracy, folks. And like I said, I, I believe if I told you, most of you would agree with at least 80 or 90%, even though you don't have to. I, I, I reserve the right for people to be wrong. Uh, and I think Christians, among others, should help change it. And there are plenty of other laws equally as absurd that I think would make a real difference without threatening legit gun owners. Let me tell you why I'm involved with Heeding God's Call. It's not because of politics. And I'm ashamed to say this, it is not because of the almost weekly rash of mass murders in this country. Like many Americans, I had tuned that out too. And even the killings in Harrisburg, I went, isn't it so bad? There's so much shooting in Harrisburg. You know when I got involved with this? It was because I pastor a church that has been a part of the carnage in this country. Eight individuals or families who attend or have attended this church in the past 10 years have lost a family member to gun violence. Eight. 
Think about that. And almost all of them were murdered with illegal handguns. There are three sons to people who attend or attended this church who were murdered on the streets of Harrisburg. I did two of those funerals. And I had to look into the face and deal with the pain of a mother's broken heart. There was one uh, godson who was murdered in his bed. A person in this church, this kid was growing up without a father. He took him under his arms, became his father, only so that he could stay out of trouble, only to have his son, godson shot dead anyway. There are uh, two people who attend this church, or did, whose brothers died from gun violence. And there was one nephew lost to a person who had already seen his son murdered right in front of him years before. And Kendrell Washington, who at the time had just started attending this church, was executed while, allowing, while lying on the ground next to Paris, Baltimore, Teresa Baltimore's grandson. The blood from that execution spilled over onto Paris. And the Lord said to me, what are you going to do and I can't and I couldn't sit by and just watch this passively. I can't be the priest with the good, in the Good Samaritan story who just walked by when, and said, this is someone else's problem. I couldn't say, hey, they didn't teach me in seminary what to do about murder. This wasn't one of my classes. I don't want to be one of the bad guys in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest that walked by. Will this involvement get me in trouble? Already has, <laughs> no doubt. But I would rather be in trouble with men than in trouble with Jesus. The world hates real nonconformity, the kind Jesus brought. It hates holy nonconformity. I don't know how many of you saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge. If you saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge, would you raise your hand? Do yourself a favor and rent that movie. Hacksaw Ridge is the extraordinarily true story of Desmond Doss, who in Okinawa during the bloodiest battle in World War II saved 75 men without carrying a gun or firing a shot. He was the only American soldier in World War II on the front lines without a weapon because he believed that what happened at Pearl Harbor needed to be addressed, but because of his faith in Christ, he believed killing was wrong. So he joined the army as a medic and went behind enemy lines and pulled people, wounded soldiers out of battle in the heat of battle and, and behind in enemy lines after the battle. And like I said before, he rescued 75 men. He was shot at. He was injured by a grenade. He was hit by snipers, and he still kept pulling wounded people back. Doss was the first conscientious objector awarded the Con Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest military award you can offer in this country for personal acts of valor that went beyond, and, uh, you know, went beyond the call of duty. Can you think of this? The Medal of Honor to a pacifist. Who would have thunked it? Was he persecuted for his stance? Go watch the movie. He was persecuted every step of the way by friends and family and soldiers and the military establishment. And of course, the, ja the Japanese weren't his friends. 
He was called a coward or worse. Soldiers told him, you without a weapon will probably cost me my life. He was the one that saved some of those lives who said, you will cost me my life. He had to go to court to even be allowed to stay in the military. It is a story in one sense. I I don't know how he had the, the personal strength, the personal spiritual strength to do it, but he did. He lived in a radical counterculture life in the middle of the bloodiest battle of World War II, and his story still echoes through the ages. There was only one thing that disappointed me about his story. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. I was going all through the movie, I was going, be brethren in Christ, be brethren, at least be Anabaptist. And when it turned up, oh, darn it, it's a Seventh-day Adventist. Today is Father's Day, and I want to tell you of another one of my heroes of the faith, one of our church fathers. And I want to tell you this because I cannot let this sermon end with the Seventh-day Adventists in front. We've got to catch up. His name was E.J. Swallum. E.J. Swallum grew up on a farm in Canada. And as a young man, he fully gave his life over to Christ in a Brethren in Christ church. He believed everyone's life was precious to God. And when World War I broke out, E.J. was drafted. And at that point in time, they, they, they really didn't have any conscientious objector laws. And when he went to the injunction center, E.J. told the officer, I will not kill. I'll serve in other ways, but I will not kill. The officer stated, you are a coward. And disgraceful, if you do not fight, you will be put in chains, taken overseas, put on the front line, and killed by the enemy. We'll make sure that happens. But E.J. was not afraid of the the official's threat. He said, I'm willing to risk my life for my beliefs, but I will not take another human life. E.J. went home. Later, his orders came from the Canadian Army and said, report immediately to the Army barracks in Hamilton, Ontario. E.J. went to Hamilton. And there he was arrested and put into prison. His case was appealed in the courts. But while he was there, in prison, the warden came to him and said, you will be in here for a long, long, long time. And some of the guards came in and said, you are guilty of treason. You will be executed before this is over. Still, E.J. would not recant. While in prison, waiting for the courts to decide, E.J. Swallum not only held to his faith, he grew in his faith. And while he was in prison, he led the prisoners in his cell block to Jesus Christ. And then he went beyond that. He led most of the guards who were guarding him to Jesus Christ. Eventually, E.J. Swallum was released and led the movement for legislatively for conscientious objectorship to be legalized in Canada through Parliament, which it was. He became a bishop and an evangelist in the church, the Brethren in Christ Church. He was a writer, an extremely gifted preacher. He was funny. He wrote that as a bishop over a large area one Sunday, a layman drove him from one Brethren in Christ Church to the other, and it was 250 miles between them. When E.J. offered to pay him... He declined. He said, I can't preach, but this is something I can do, which is give you a ride. 
Thanking him, E.J. replied, It is so exhilarating to meet a man who knows he can't preach. I have listened for a number of years to men who can't preach, and they don't know it. <laughs> E.J. was one of the five or six giants of our movement. He was on Father's Day. You're going, how does he work Father's Day into this passage? E.J. Swallow was one of the fathers of this church, one of the handful of giants. And we celebrate him on Father's Day. I had the privilege of meeting him before his death in 1991 at the age of 94. He was still sharp as a tack, and it was an honor. His granddaughter gave me two of his books, one autographed. I will always treasure them. And his granddaughter still attends this church. She will be here today. Oh, she is here today. Stick up your fist and shake it. All right, there you go. I, I thought that was ironic. Anyway. Her name is Karen Diley. She serves with her husband, Dan, with their own mission organization in India these days. If you really follow Jesus Christ, don't expect things to be easy. Expect trouble on the way. Not because you seek it out or like it, but because if you stand for anything true, someone won't like it. Especially the dark lord of this world. And I don't mean Voldemort. <laughs> Persecution, Jesus was saying, in one, in one way is proof that you're on the right track. It is verification you belong to a righteous line. What Jesus is saying if they persecute you, you're in company with me. And in Hebrews 11, you're in, it says you're in company with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Moses and John the Baptist. You're in company with Jesus Christ himself who said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Because no one, no servant is greater than his master. Persecution is proof, Jesus indicated, that you are not of this world. If the world persecutes you, it is evidence that you do not belong to it. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It is saying, it is helping clarify priorities. It is saying that you belong to someone or something much greater than this world. Persecution proves the fact that we are destined for a new world. That we are going to a city not made with hands. We belong to another realm, another set of values, another kingdom, another destiny, another world. And let the rejection of this world remind you of the world to come. Persecution means that we are living for something worth dying for. Do not be afraid of the world, Jesus said. I have overcome the world. And that is what we live for. That is what we are, must be willing to die for. That is what we hope for. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> By the way, I do need to say that Zach Dalton up here early, man, he had some good parents to turn out that way. <laughs> I, uh, uh, you know, oh, Zach said, are you sure it wasn't Chris? I can tell the difference most days. Anyway, you know, and since it's Father's Day, I'll take most of the credit. Uh, no, I'm... Lordy mercy, I'm melting. <laughs> I've got to just... 
And let us never forget, we serve the Heavenly Father. He is father to the fatherless. He is husband to the widows. No matter what has happened, our Father loves us more than we can imagine. And we celebrate that fact today too. Do not let circumstances of the world convince you otherwise. You, your Heavenly Father loves you like he loves Jesus Christ. Never forget that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. The altar will be open. I'm asking the intercessors to come forward. And we'll take a little time. But just, just worship the Lord this morning. He is good. He is good. Would you stand? And let us, uh, let us open the altar. It's open.